Hi there, and welcome to bonus episodes of Typical Books. These are excerpts from the Typical Books monthly horror magazine, a subscription podcast that offers interviews with authors and artists and essays about horror fiction uncut. You can find that on Patreon slash Typical Books and Apple Podcasts by searching Typical Books. These episodes may be offered in parts, so take a look at the title. It will indicate how many parts there are to this episode. And as ever, enjoy as we talk to writers about writing. So, on with the show. Welcome to the author interview for this month. We are speaking to Gavin Gardner, who hails from Glasgow, Scotland, and Gavin believes there is no greater terror than a truly unhinged human mind. With the social media, which you've luckily, again, put your best foot forward with that, definitely, there has been, we've been lucky in that we've had to move away from a lot of in-person events and things like that, but the uh, bones were there and the infrastructure was there and, and people have experimented with things like uh, book events and conventions and readings online and I had caught you doing a reading on Instagram you did very well with that and I've heard a uh, short other reading that you've done uh, is that something that you quite enjoy have you had the opportunity to do any in-person events in the last year I really enjoyed reading those excerpts uh, I really loved it like I I used to like acting at school, you know, doing plays, that kind of thing. I think there's a bit of a performer in me, a bit of a diva maybe. Uh, so I would love to do more stuff like that. I've even thought about when the time comes for audiobooks. Maybe I would consider giving that a bash, maybe narrating my own book. But no, I've not done any in-person stuff. I mean, it was the book was picked up early 2019, so it was really just as the pandemic was hitting. And that's another uh, reason I had that revelation I told you about where like, I just figured I need to use my imagination to figure out how to stand out. I can't just go down like generic routes because when the world's in lockdown, how do you, how do you like get your book out there? How do you do any meaningful promotion? So yeah, I've got social media to thank for that, of course. But yeah, I want to get to some conventions, maybe some, horror or fantasy conventions, uh, set up a wee desk, just try and convince people they need more disturbing horror in their lives. And there are some great macabre cons in the UK. And I mean, you are in the land of Waterstones, where I had heard of Waterstones as of such, it's, it's, it sounds like a magical, almost Harry Potter-esque bookstore to me, uh, even though it's just uh, a bookstore. But yeah. Joe Hill had done a signing there in an event, which cemented it in my mind as the place where horror authors should go yeah 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 i'm i'm so looking forward to the lifting of restrictions so that you can in, enjoy that sort of thing because you do have a great voice and presence and that you enjoy it that's something that a lot of authors i find don't particularly enjoy even if they're good at it they don't really enjoy reading their own work so that is a boon and hopefully you can figure out some more places to do that, whether it's online or, or live. And if it's live, please put it online. <laughs> I will, I'll let you know. But yeah, that's something I'm very excited about. I think all all of us indie authors are really desperate to get out there and uh, actually like meet, meet the fans face to face and connect with people in the real world. We've all been staring at screens for a year and a half, haven't we? So 
yeah, the world's out there waiting for us. It's great in a way that all, all of us horror authors and horror readers, I think, are, are predominantly positive people, and you want to go meet people. And even though there was a little misgiving with having to be online and having to be on social, the social aspect of social media, and uh, but realizing what you what vein you've been able to tap into as far as input from readers and 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 it's like having a crystal ball where let's say ten years ago we'd have to guess what readers want and publishers have to guess what readers want agents have to pretend they know what readers want and now we have a lot closer sort of distance between what we're writing and what is going to be popular so it's a lot it's handy but then for all that positivity and glad handing and happiness and togetherness and kumbaya you write some very dark stuff if i might say so myself (laughs) oh you may you may very much do other writers that you know perhaps or readers have they responded perhaps negatively or are there family members that have that colloquial reaction of why do you write such horrible things do you have you had any negative responses to these dark topics i've i've really i've really had none I've really had none and it was good, which is great of course it was going to go one way or the other with this thing because you've read the book you know it's a very grim tale it's very nihilistic um there's not really very much positive you can take away from it this was all totally deliberate i wanted to we talked about subverting the genre earlier and um i was a bit tired of <laughs> okay it's a great book okay but i i do refer to this sometimes as the save the cat generation where we are painting by numbers to a degree. And I've just read so many books in the, in the past sort of decade that just seem to be jumping through the same hoops. And, you know, story structure exists for a reason. It's been by and large the same for centuries. So the, these these archetypes and tropes exist for a reason. Uh, and I've, I've got nothing against them, but I did want to <laughs> do a bit of a mic drop. I wanted to smash the guitar on the stage do a Pete Townsend you know um yeah and so part of that was just going as grim and nihilistic and despair driven as I could and it's been really affirming to see that people have really dug it people are into it um it's something I've always believed we've all got a need a psychological need for the macabre and people have just proven that theory by lapping this book up so yeah I'm gonna I'm gonna write more grim shit for sure i'm glad that that's been encouraging because you're right there is a, a formulaic and paint by numbers you say it's very true when you can sort of guess and i am sure there's people that enjoy that sort of predictability within their entertainment but by and large readers of horror don't they want something unexpected and that is what the joy is of the unknown even in its most basic form, horror wants to push an envelope or subvert the norm or do the unexpected. So you're exactly right. And I'm really glad that you haven't thought, well, maybe it'd be easier to write a cozy mystery, a creepy cozy, or stay in like a tamer thriller genre because of input mm-hmm. from readers or uh, those around you. I think it's largely a myth that horror writers these days are asked why they write such dark stuff because let's say 10 years ago 20 years ago that was more of a question that was asked i think nowadays it's encouraged and i'm really glad that you have that support around you to continue 
with this really grim and dark angle to very well wrought stories. And it's not splatterpunk either. I mean, when you say smash the guitar on stage, uh, in Four Rye, there is definitely a moment of that for sure. It gets almost into splatter uh, territory. And I'm wondering then, like, what are your favorite authors? Do you read very dark and, and visceral horror like that? Or do you stick to, like you mentioned, misery, something that is of a lighter, quieter fare? Um, again, like confession time, when I decided to write a book, I wasn't that well read in the genre. Um, it's not, I've most writers you speak to have been reading voraciously their entire lives. And uh, I've always read, but it wasn't until I decided to try my hand at writing. And when I read On Writing by King, and he said to write, you must read. And so I took the master's word for it. And uh, yeah, I dove into the genre and basically I'm still making up for lost time. I'm trying to get through all the all the classics that a horror writer just is obligated to, to read. I really believe you have to read the work of the giants on whose shoulders you stand. So I'm, I'm having a great time reading all these classics for the first time. My main love of horror was in film. I mean, I'm a horror film junkie, lifelong. And yeah, I love the gory stuff. I love the extreme stuff. I love the psychological stuff. I love it all. Um, and I've dipped my toes into splatterpunk in the splatterpunk novels. And yeah, so far, right, I did kind of want to draw on that. I wanted to get some blood and guts in there somehow, but the, the priority was making it an integral cog in the machine. I didn't want to just throw a spice in the mix for no good reason. And so I, I hope I paid tribute to those because I think like blood and guts and gore can serve a very important purpose and it gets a bad rap, but no, I, I could talk all day about why it's a, a valid part of the genre. Um, but yeah, because, because this was all new to me and because I didn't know as much about structure then as I do now, I look back on the book and I can see how it may be flawed in certain ways. Like it doesn't get really brutal until about halfway through. And then it's just, as you know, it gets quite grisly and stuff. But yeah, the, the idea of the plan was never to do a copy and paste horror. I always thought of it more of as an experiment. And I think it's a bit different. So yeah, I'm happy with that. Yeah, that's the most refreshing thing. I think, especially being a new voice in horror, um, your your writing voice comes out quite strong and it's certainly not trying to emulate any other author. And that makes a lot of sense saying that you haven't read, you're not as widely read in horror as far as the genre. And that makes a lot of sense. Coming from the film thing though, I find them very interchangeable. A lot of um, writing conventions I've been to, they don't talk about film and it's like forbidden really to draw parallels, oh. but so many films are based on books. So many of us, that write watch a lot of horror film and really appreciate that so that makes some sense where you've able to pull out the story thing you had mentioned speaking with someone very into film about story and talking at length about the craft it's very similar that story by robert mckee and on writing by stephen king are two very important books of course one is about writing screenplays for crying out loud 
And I can listen to my podcast partner at yeah. splatterpictures.net dead air, where we talk about horror film specifically, but we end up talking about Stephen King all of the time. Not that he's as widely read either, but I am. And so many films are based on Stephen King books. So, I mean, I, I'm really glad and it's refreshing. And I think that's why your voice is so unique because you're not, you know, full of all of the other books mm -hmm. that so many other authors are when they're so widely read. That could be it. Yeah. I, I realized very early on that there's the real danger would be imitating the films I love and replicating, trying to make a movie work in a book because I find it really fascinating the, the parallels and the differences between a, a book and a movie. And I think it's really important. You have to remember the format you're writing for because both formats give you so many opportunities. There's things you can do in a movie that you can't do in a book and there's things you can do in a book that you can. And so you have to, you have to be very much, and I've read a lot of books that just feel like they're trying to be movies. And it's such a shame because your arsenal, your, your array of tools and weapons at your disposal, they're just gathering dust. Like you need to, you need to appreciate the medium in which you're working. And I, I tried to do that, but I, I also took a lot of stuff from films that I have picked up over the years for sure. Have you thought of crafting for Ryan to a screenplay at all? Well, funnily enough, I did a lot of I did a lot of studying of screenplays. Uh, no, sorry, this was after once once I'd finished Four Rye, I went back to read some of the old writing books I read before I wrote Four Rye, and in preparation for this new novel I'm writing, I went back and read some of my old writing books, and in the process, I got into uh, watched a lot of screenplay tutorials, listened to interviews with sort of screenwriting legends and turns out there's loads of stuff you can take away loads of valuable lessons to be learned in the construction of a movie script and an actual screenplay and it's it's a wealth of information any authors listening i totally recommend to read a screenwriting book and um, but in terms of me writing a screenplay i don't think it's something i could do i don't think i could whittle <laughs> down my work in that way i think maybe you need a certain detachment to your work uh to be able to convert it to film. So I would I would give that to somebody else. Maybe if Ari Astor fancies, he's welcome to. That makes sense, that makes sense. I, I, I think you're definitely right. You need a little more distance there. And I think that's why the film novelization on the other side of the coin is a craft in and of itself. I would have loved to see some of For Rye on film, that's for sure, because it is painted just so vividly. I'm looking forward to the last testament of Crichton Smythe, just in case there are some more very realistic snippets of the countryside or the city. Does it take place entirely in the countryside or one or the other? Something I decided early on was that every book I want to really put a new spin on what it is I'm doing. And uh, the last testament of Crichton Smythe is a total curveball. Imagine for Rye and think about everything you know about Far Right and then just drop it off a cliff. Um, this is set in a, a fictional American city. It's set in the US. It's even written in US English um, mm -hmm. because it's from the perspective of an, Engl of an American, a young man. Um, I kind of see it as my American Psycho meets Catcher in the Rye. It's an unreliable narrator, a bit of a twisted gentleman 
uh, but it is in a funny sort of way, maybe a coming of age story, a disillusioned guy in this city who's a very peculiar, a very peculiar skill, and he's trying to figure out what to do with it. Yeah, it's a weird one, all right. Actually, talking about movies, um, Hereditary hit me really hard. Ari Aster's Hereditary, I, I really loved that. And it was around the same time that Midsommar came out that I was writing Crying the Smile. And I was really fascinated by how he'd gone from Hereditary, which is somewhat analogous to For Rye in its, in its nihilism and grimness. Mm-hmm. And then he'd gone into Midsommar. And I was, I was really taken aback by the, the comedic element he injected into that film. I thought that's a genius move because you know what people are expecting from you and you've just turned it on its head and you've gone with the daylight horror thing and these unexpected components have actually heightened the horror so i can't remember if i decided to go down a comedic route with crying smite because of that or if i'd already written crying smite but nevertheless i have gone a slight comedic route with Crichton in the service of the horror. So it's it's very different, very different. Now I'd have to say there is not one laugh to be had in Four Rise. So that's neat. I'm very, I'm looking forward to seeing this new angle, definitely. Mm-hmm. Is it a very long book? About how many pages in novella? Because that span kind of gets into novelette territory or long short story. Uh, about how yeah. long is the new novella? It's funny, yeah, the definitions of all these, because I write flash fiction, as you know, as well. But my flash fictions could kind of be seen as short stories, so it's all quite undefinable. Anyway, um, the novella is about 90 pages. And you're an author. I should be talking to you in word count, but I can't even remember, because it's like two years ago I wrote the thing. But it's a very short read. It is a very short read. The plan was to put this out while I'm in the middle of working on my next novel, just to remind people I exist (laughs) it's a quick read it's about 90 pages but it's a full complete story and I've applied a little bit more about structure that I've learned in the meantime it's maybe got an element of the the Joseph Campbell monomyth hero's journey in it but somewhat inverted it's maybe a a sort of a dark transformation in some ways sort of in the same way for Raya's I think I think and I hope that it's another new spin on the genre. But I'm really looking forward to hearing what people make of it. That's a fantastic tactic because it is good timing for Halloween and in between uh, novel releases, that's for sure. Novellas have become very, very popular in the past maybe two years. The last year for sure, it seems that they are flying off the shelves and I'm not exactly sure what shift has happened in the zeitgeist as far as readers go. I know that publishers, it's a very, it's a longer curve as far as they're changing, but on a dime, it seems readers decided that novellas were the thing to do. And yeah. it's great timing for that. It's really strange because that shift in the zeitgeist you're talking about, either it happened after I finished Crichton or I only noticed it after I finished Crichton. But when I wrote the thing, I got to the last page and I was like, hang on, there's not actually that many novellas out there for sale that I can see. And I'm not seeing many submission calls for novellas. What the hell am I going to do with this thing? But almost overnight, it just seemed like the particularly novels in our genre 
horror novellas. Sorry, novella. Um, they've just exploded, like you say. So mm-hmm. yeah, I hope people, I hope people can find room in their hearts for Little Crichton. You have such a such a smirk when you talk about him, and if, <laughs> really referred to him as an odd name for an odd man and things like that. So I was just heightening the suspense on this end. Um, mm-hmm. Is it with the same publisher, or have you found a different publisher for this? It's with the same publisher, although it was actually going to go out under a different publisher, another indie press. But for boring reasons, we've decided to shift over to Burton Mares again. It was originally going to come out at the same time as Far Rai, but I just saw that strategically as a total waste for so many obvious reasons. So I'm really happy the way it's worked out. I've been able to give a bit of breathing room to my readers, give them time to digest, because there's a there's a lot of stuff in Far Rai. Give them some time for that to settle. And uh, yeah, this very different, hopefully very fresh take on the genre will be out soon. And it's a funny phase you'll know yourself just before a book comes out because you've lived with it for so long and nobody else knows this guy no that's why i talk about Crichton was like such affection but also like you don't know what the hell you're getting into people that talk about how much they're looking forward to reading it and then i'm like yeah hold on wait and see wait and see <laughs> which is such a, a backwards uh, approach right but <laughs> it's working for me that's for sure it's it is an odd space to be in before a book is published or even the aftermath the aftermath is probably the thing that I hadn't foreseen with my first book I thought uh, I'll put a book out there and then get writing on the next one while well, it just does its thing right right and I heard another writer of nonfiction put it as uh, y- you release the book and you're like go forth onto the world and <laughs> It, your book goes forth onto the world and it just like, what? You expect it to grow legs and run around doing promotion for you or something like that? Now, I hadn't really anticipated that aftermath of maybe not being able to sit down and write the next book right away because you're busy doing yeah, yeah, all yeah. of the previous book related stuff still, right? It's crazy. Yeah. If you were to have been promoting two books, I think that would have, you know, maybe taken away from one or... Um, yeah, one would have risen and one would have, would have sunk. So I, I'm really glad that this had a little bit of a leeway. And Halloween, I keep coming back to Halloween. This will be coming out in the first week of October for the first half of the interview and the second shortly thereafter and the whole thing for subscription listeners. So it'll be October. So there'll be some anticipation built in right there, I'm sure. Awesome, awesome. You are working on another novel. What is coming up next and what is it that you're most excited for? Well, I'm excited and a bit apprehensive about the novella. It's again, it's another experiment. It's just like Far Right. It's certainly, I don't feel like I've taken many cues from books I've written. So it could go either way. It really could. And when you've read it, you'll realize how apprehensive I, I, I probably should be more apprehensive than I The language, the tone is like, there's ever, as you know, Far Rai was more prosy, more yeah. maybe even if I can say myself, a little bit of poetic sort of influence in the descriptions, all this stuff. Crichton is just a rambling madman in some ways. So I really, it could absolutely go either way. So I'm excited and apprehensive about that. But you were mentioning, you were talking about all the work that a writer does when a book is finally released. 
and the nasty surprise that there's far less degree of autonomy to a book than we would like, you have to coddle it through its lifespan. So I've not had much time to work on the next novel, um, but I'm finally, the momentum is picking up now. Like I said, I'm, I'm a big plotter, so I'm about 75% completely plotted, and then it will be the first draft and all the editing and developmental stuff. So yeah, Witchcraft on Rook and Ridge is on its way. Um, that's an ode to my love of folk horror. It's a, it's a folk horror set up a mountain, up an Austrian mountain. And I usually describe it with the words cults, caves, and cannibals. The three C's. Yeah, <laughs> the three C's, yeah. So it's going to be fun for all the family. That sounds exactly up my alley. And folk horror has had a light shone on it since The Witch made itself so big. And people remembered how much they loved things like The Wicker Man. So that sort of story set up a mountain of caves and cannibals added into the mm. mix. Wow. Uh, have you found yeah. that this um, journey has been a little quicker because you've got sort of a map to follow from writing your first debut novel? Has this gone a little smoother so far? I thought it would. Um, and the process has been smoother. I wrote for Rai just on a mess of word documents but i'm now a scrivener man i wrote Crichton on scrivener and uh it, it's like folder hierarchy that you, the binder you can just organize your projects so thoroughly so i'm finding uh witchcraft on rook and ridge to be far more smooth organized but yeah there's just been so many other things namely promotion of the other books I've just not been able to get my head properly in the game, but I've been slogging on. I've not been I've not been skiving too much. It is a huge amount of work I do before I even write the first words. So yeah, I'm getting there. I really am getting there. It's just really exciting because there's so many horror tropes that I love and I found a way to combine arguably the three biggest horror archetypes into into one fictional mechanism and i'm very excited for the world to see to see what that is but again it's an experiment it's a it's different it's a bit risky it could die in the water but we'll see we'll just have to wait and see i'm glad that you're so willing to experiment especially with the caves cults and cannibals as i said the three c's some of my favorite <laughs> yeah. c's out there that's yeah. fantastic so where can people find you online? Um, you spend some time on Instagram, a little on Twitter, but you have your website. What's the best spot to find you online? I'm most active on Instagram. I find that's just such a positive platform. Everybody's there just for the same reason, just to celebrate this genre and to celebrate reading and storytelling and to support each other. Um, but I've tried to make myself present on all the main platforms and uh you can find my link tree um which has got a list of all my all my various platforms but i always encourage readers to and just fans of horror to get in touch i'm always up for talking to new people and hearing about any insights people have on the genre i'm not as scary as my books might suggest not at all it's been a pleasure talking to you today and i look forward to talking to you again so after uh, the Please. novella perhaps next year sometime maybe we'll make it an yeah. annual hangout something like yeah, that yeah, yeah. but thank you yeah. so much for taking the time to talk to me about your writing today gavin thank you lydia it's been an absolute joy and uh i'll you can have me on anytime you know where to find me
And thus ends the bonus episode for today. And I'll thank you very much for listening. Of course, check back soon for more bonus episodes. These aren't found on the YouTube show. So as a special thank you to listeners of the podcast, here we are. You can find the essays at typicalbooks.com. And if you're interested in the full length episodes, check out the Patreon or Apple podcasts. If there's anything that you think that I ought to be talking about on Typical Books, let me know and make sure you have an ooky spooky day. Thank you.